Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The hog's head. The king's head. The head of the river. The three goats' heads. The hog's king. The head's goat. The three rivers' head. The head's head. The king of goats. The head's river. The hog of the head. The three heads' heads. The head of the goats, the river's king, the three hogs, the head's head's head, the moon underwater. It's good to finally see you here in the moon underwater this evening. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. The moon underwater has got a bee in its bonnet. Oh, really? Yeah. But that's a good thing. Yeah. Because if you look over there, see see its bonnet. Yeah. But see that enormous bee? Yeah. Yeah. I think what it, it's a sign in many ways. This is quite a sort of um, harvest feel to the moon underwater. But what it likes to do is just make sure that our guests aren't beset by bees. Uh, when they arrive in the correct realm, because as you know, when you traverse the realms, bees get a heads up somehow. It's part of their innate sort of uh, system. You know that bees have a lot of systems. So was the bonnet there to, to protect you from bees? No, I think the bonnet is there to to sort of give the bees somewhere to go right, okay. when, when people are coming in. But anyway, the moon underwater's got a bee in its bonnet, and that can only mean... Uh, that this week's guest is on their way, and I think I think I can see him now. What is that? What's he used to get here? What have they sent for him today, Robin? It looks like a, a fiacre. Yes, that was exactly the word I was going to say. A fiacre. Um, yeah. And if you could just tell everyone what what you mean by a fiacre, and then I'll tell them what I mean. Yeah, sure. I'll, it's it is a. Mm. 
just take a while to think about yeah no, um, i need to think about exactly it's a small four-wheeled carriage for public hire and do you know you took the words right out of my mouth yes um, yes a small four-wheeled carriage for public hire yeah um and there he steps down and uh, his his he's obviously also hired a cape and that's removed by the person that drives the fiacre if indeed they are driven and into the moon underwater walks esteemed novelist will boyd hello will hello john and robin thrilled to be here hello how how was the fiacre is that your first experience on a fiacre uh certainly uh yes to be driven by one i've i've written about them quite a lot and uh i'm aware that it's a kind of cheap form of public transport in the 19th century so i'm in it for the glamour you know yes and, and i was also aware of that and i think robin was too <laughs> sort of innately aware of the time at which theacras were at their peak the golden age of the theacra of course yeah Fiacre with Fee- an F. Yes. Fee- yeah, well, yeah. well, the opinion is split. Um, <laughs> but uh, Will, what do you make of the Moon Underwater, the pub that is all all hope and all desire? It's it's quite something, isn't it? Yes, it's a sort of um, metaphorical pub in the way the the ultimate pub of pubs, and uh, that's what's so appealing about it. Um, it somehow encompasses all possible pubs and therefore is unique it is i'm just going to write down pub of pubs i do like that (laughs) it does has a have a slightly um biblical cadence to it if i'm not mistaken the moon underwater's heard that and i and i think we're staring down the barrel of a plaque revealing itself quite soon (laughs) perhaps in latin what would the latin be for pub of pubs i'll look it up um well before we talk about your dream pub before we talk about your new book, The Romantic, I wanted to ask, um, how useful are pubs and bars and drinking to an author as sort of tools and places to send characters? Well, they're fantastically useful uh, uh, for all these sorts of reasons. Um, there's a, you know, there's a, a great myth about you know creativity and boozing <laughs> um, <laughs> and I have a wonderful book about uh, writers who are drunks which is called The Thirsty Muse and uh, I think pubs are a great recourse for writers when they've run out of ideas or need some quick inspiration but I've also I must say in my uh, various novels I've invented masses of pubs because um, people are always drinking and uh, I've re- invented truly horrible pubs and some <laughs> uh, some really rather smart ones so it's um, it's one of these fun it's coming on this uh, podcast has made me think of the the role of the pub in the novels of William Boyd and I realize it's worryingly large perhaps but uh, <laughs> there, there we go um it's where I live in London. There are four pubs within a 200-yard radius of my house, so maybe that's got something to do with it. <laughs> Amazing. Is, is it quite useful if you need a character to be sort of... Um, to act out of character or to do something rash? Is alcohol and the pub quite a good way into that? Yes, it is. I think it's also um, it's a good place to, to eavesdrop. You know, I think... Um, I I always carry a little notebook with me, and when I'm when I go to a pub on my own, 
um, I, I have it out. And you know, a, you know, a middle-aged man writing in a notebook is probably a novelist. Um, so I, I listen to conversations and I look at people and I jot down things. And I've had many... Uh, many an inspirational exchange has taken place uh, in pubs um, for me as an eavesdropper and they found their way into my novels so it's it's uh, just part and parcel of the you know the cinema of everyday life that you're constantly uh, taking note of and and possibly making use of and so pubs are a fantastic place to, to do that, um, particularly in the day somehow. I think I'm a, a daytime pub goer rather than evening or nighttime pub goer. And somehow it's always a bit quieter and you can hear the conversations better and you can observe people more clearly because there's not so much hustle and bustle going on. Well, I think also in the daytime in a pub, people are there for a much broader variety of reasons. Whereas in the evening, I think you know, the majority of people in a pub are there to sort of drink with friends, whereas you get people arranging meetings or you get sort of perhaps couples who don't necessarily want to be seen together elsewhere or you, you get a sort of real cross-section of different uh, experiences. Yeah, I think you get an older drinker as well in the day <laughs> sometimes and people are on their laptops or on their phones so it doesn't they don't have to they don't necessarily have to be meeting somebody so the solitary drinker is also an interesting uh, phenomenon so uh, I've observed it a lot and um and and sure enough they that these observations find their way into into the books or the stories or the or the movies or whatever You've um, put me on to a number of great writers over the past couple of years. Who would you say are the archetypal, sort of the great pub writers, the people who evoke the pub and the atmosphere of, of the pub and, and of drinking the best? Who stands out? Uh, a good question, John. <laughs> um, Graham Greene comes to mind. Uh Malcolm Lowry, hopeless alcoholic himself, mm. uh, Patrick Hamilton. Um, not some, I'm trying desperately trying to think of a, of a, a woman writer who went. I don't think Virginia Woolf went to the pub very often. Um, <laughs> We've but, done because um, we do a section of the pub library. So I've done Lowry. Um, and Patrick Hamilton. Haven't done Graham Greene yet, but we've done Muriel, Muriel Spark. She writes quite well about pubs. And Iris Murdoch in Under the Nets. Oh, yes, a yes. Um, pub crawl in that. Yes. Which is good. Well, I met Muriel Spark, actually, when she was a, really? an older lady. Yes, I'm a great fan of her um, work. And she was... Um, but, you know, she lived in Italy for so much of her life, so I, I don't really think of her and pubs in the same, yeah. in the same sentence somehow. But yeah. uh, there you go. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I'd say I'm going through a bit of a Stella Gibbons jag at the minute. She writes brilliantly about the tea room. Yeah. And I'm all about the, the tea room novel. And I think Patrick Hamilton writes well about the, the lion's tea room as well. Hmm. Yes, you forget that they were um, because it was you know in the before I suppose uh, before World War Two you know going into a pub as a couple was quite unusual. Certainly, a single uh, woman wouldn't go into a pub, um, and so it, it was a really a male domain for for a lot of um, the history of the pub. Um, but it's now become totally egalitarian. So you don't really. I mean, in my novel um, trio. 
there's a, a, a writer in it called Elfrida Wing and Elfrida Wing is a complete alcoholic and she goes into a pub she's uh, in uh, in Brighton and she's a great pub goer and she's also obsessed with Virginia Woolf which is quite interesting um, but uh, I'm just trying to think of the horrible pub I invented in Brighton for her to go to um, but uh, it's uh, no, it's funny once you start thinking about it you know so much socializing uh in fiction it, if it's not a dinner party it's a cocktail bar or a pub or something like that and so i i bet you if you started enumerating the appearances of uh the appearances of p public houses in in you know 20th century british fiction the list would be vast yeah <laughs> so the romantic your new novel is a i guess what you would call a is it a full life story it it follows someone from pretty much birth uh, till the end of their life. Yeah. And that's a, a format you've used before. What is it that appeals to you about staying with the same character for that long and being able to place them in so many different locations? Well, I call them whole life novels. Um, and um, I sort of stumbled across the... the it's a tiny genre in, uh, in fiction, actually. There are very few whole life novels even the great victorian novels uh you know dickens thackeray trollope they don't do the whole life they they end when the character's 40 or 50 um, but to do cradle to grave has a strange effect i think on the reader and i think that's why i've, I've written four or possibly five uh, of these uh novels and i think because you the reader have all the information which you don't have with an orthodox novel you know everything from the character's childhood adolescence you know young manhood or young womanhood i've written a whole life novel about a woman and their love affairs their marriages their divorces their ups and downs their successes and failures uh, old age advancing illness um, crisis etc by the time you finish the novel and you've reached the character's death or near death you you actually have the kind of information about a person that might be a member of your family or a or a close friend and i think that the reactions i've had to my whole life novels have confirmed that that people somehow get embroiled in the life of this character precisely because they know everything or everything i'm going to tell them um all the boring bits as well as the exciting bits and i think that changes your perception as a reader and your and your engagement with the character is is all the more vivid and all the more compelling um and so that's when you know every now and then i i get an idea and i think this could be a whole life novel and um i embark on it it's hard work it's technically demanding masses of research required because you're covering you know 70 or 80 years of of a human uh, lifespan but it's um it's it's very fulfilling because of the reaction you get to to that character's life i think for me the thing i mean i loved the romantic and, and i also loved any human heart i think the thing i like about both of them which are, are both whole life novels is this idea of how many lifetimes or how many lives you can live in one lifetime. You know, there are, there are so many different phases in the romantic that it's it's extraordinary how much one person who was alive in the 19th century could theoretically have experienced from the Battle of Waterloo to meeting, you know, Byron and Shelley to, you know, 
emigrating to America, to all these extraordinary historical events like looking for the source of the Nile. This idea that one person could experience all those different things because of the time they happened to be born in, you know, I think it's so so interesting. It kind of got me thinking about, like, you know, the, the Rolling Stones played this summer in Hyde Park and it was their 60th anniversary. And you kind of think, that's 60, okay, they've been around for 60 years. If you take that 60 years and imagine, say, a band from the 1920s playing in the 1980s, it suddenly seems <laughs> suddenly seems so surreal. Yes. You know, so it's just it just shows how much can be contained within the span of a life, I suppose. So much historical information. Yeah, I, I think it depends on the on the individual, but I think if if you live a long life and if you if you have a kind of interesting life, um, then inevitably that's true. And and nineteenth century lives were as crammed with incident as as twentieth century or twenty first century lives. And I look back at my own life, which seems pretty you know sort of straightforward and sedentary. But um, I've been caught up in all manner of things and experienced all manner of, of, of events and met all, all ex- manner of extraordinary people. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's t- you, know, you don't have to have uh, fought in a war, but, you, but if you've lived a long life, um, you have had the ex- enough experiences that would probably fill a decent sized novel. You know, so it's... Um, it's uh, it's not that unusual, uh, but uh, you know, of course, I'm manipulating the narrative and giving my character uh, a, a lot of interesting things to do and a lot of interesting encounters. But uh, you know, he he's also spends a couple of years in prison, kind of dull, you know. So it's uh, there's the, all sorts of aspects of any human life go into creating these stories of, of a particular lifetime and a particular lifespan. How much of the... So in, in the romantic, the the main character spends time with Shelley and with, uh, with Byron. How much are you fulfilling your own fantasies when you choose the phases of a life? Are you, are you sort of thinking... I would I would love to explore in my own mind and then on paper what it would have been like to have spent a summer with the romantics. Yes, or else I'm recycling material that I haven't haven't been able to use. I mean, in the case of uh, of Percy Bysshe Shelley, I spent eight years failing to complete a PhD thesis on him, so I have this vast store of un unused knowledge about Shelley and the and the the later romantics you know Keats Shelley Byron uh, as well as Wordsworth and Coleridge and I've always been thinking of a way of of you know tapping into that because I'm very interested in demythologizing famous people and it's uh, one of the pleasures of fiction to present a portrait of someone who people seem to know through received wisdom and say actually he wasn't like this at all. And you know, Shelley is a very good example of the images of Shelley we have of this fair-haired, you know, fey youth with his shirt unbuttoned to his navel, looking dreamingly out into the middle distance. But um, a, a bit of research I uh, discovered when I started my, my thesis was that you know, Shelley was unusually tall for the 19th century. He, he had exceptionally bad skin, so he obviously suffered very badly from a- acne as an adolescent. Um, he had reddish hair, not blonde hair, and Byron's mistress, uh, Teresa Guccioli, said he had the most uneven teeth I've ever seen in a young man. <laughs> so you suddenly think this, you know, 
um, gangling, acne-ravaged, snaggle-toothed old, Eto- <laughs> old Etonian is actually a true picture of Shelley other th- rather than the one that we, that we all think we know. Same with Byron. He was, he was seriously overweight in 1822 and a, an appalling snob, apparently, according to everyone who met him. So I'd sort of like to present them as I have discovered them through research and, and um, make them more real rather than their kind of idealised versions. That's brilliant. I think the, the the other thing that I was really interested in with the romantic and any human heart is they both concern people who are authors, but who have kind of, I mean, obviously they're fictional characters, but for somehow their legacy is never the same as their contemporaries. They're sort of these forgotten characters of history. I wonder, what What is it that attracts you to kind of figures like that, do you think? Well, I think uh, uh, to a certain extent they're based on, on real examples. Um uh, the the character of Logan Mount Stewart in Any Human Heart is based on a completely forgotten English novelist called William Gohardy, who who was a, a huge star of the literary firmament in the nineteen twenties. I've got a book over. I've got Doom over there. Oh wow! Because I picked it up from my dad's yes. collection. Well, the other day. You, you, you're you're a, a, a rare Gohardy reader, Robin. Uh, <laughs> But no, no. I think it's called uh, it, it, when it was first published. It was called Jazz and Jasper. Actually, he changed the title three times. Anyway, Gohardi had this huge success. He was like the Sally Rooney of the 1920s, if you like. Um, he, he, his, his career peaked in his you know 30s, and then it was a long, slow downhill slide. And he wrote his last book in 1940, but died in 1977. So he had 37 years of silence. And in a way, for any writer, that is an appalling um, thing to contemplate. Uh, he published you know, a dozen books. He'd known great success. He'd made a lot of money. And then it all, then the wheels fell off. And um, so I'm quite, maybe, you know, I'm more attracted to people who are, finding life difficult than finding life easy and so i'm i'm intrigued by that sort of uh you know bad luck um because um you know everybody has bad luck in their life and it's usually more interesting than writing about some you know lucky bastard so uh <laughs> so uh i sort of concentrate and you know my character in the romantic casual ross has his ups and downs, but his his life ends with a certain kind of uh, self knowledge and serenity, and he's not doing too badly. But it's uh, it's more that you know the the, uh, the marginal character, the marginal people are more interesting in a way than the ones you know on the top of the of the pinnacle. So I think that uh, it's natural for for a novelist to write about them and you know when it's more interesting when things go wrong at a very mm. basic level uh when things go right it kind of boring what do you say you know <laughs> yeah. he was incredibly handsome rich successful and lived to a ripe old age and died happy and contented you know where's the novel in that you know yeah. it's uh, it's uh, it's things have got to go wrong i think basically Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Let's take that on board, but also accept that things are going to go very right when you choose uh, your dream pub. Um, We're going to start with some selections, and maybe in part two we'll talk about some of the pubs you have known. But, Will, I'm going to ask you for your first two options, your draft options, please. Yeah, well, um, I've got them clear in my mind, and this is probably a heretical thing to say on this podcast, but I'm, I'm not a great beer drinker. Um, but when but, but when I was at university in Scotland, in Glasgow, uh, I used to drink uh, a lot of beer, uh, as most students do. But I, I, for some reason, even though I was in Scotland, I used to drink Newcastle brown ale, um, which you then could only buy in pint bottles. I believe it's now on draft. Um, but uh, I used to drink that all the time. So the first um, beer on tap would be Newcastle, not Newcastle, Newcastle Brown Ale. Um, and uh, it will it's a, nost- a nostalgic trip for me. Um, just thinking about it makes me think I must go and drink some more to see if <laughs> see if the, see if the Proustian rush returns, you know. But uh, but I drank that all the time, and I don't know why. I used to go to this pub we talk about later in, in in Glasgow called the Pewter Pot, and I would order a bottle, a pint bottle of of Newcastle Brown Ale. So that would be my first choice. But I do drink I do drink lager beers in the summer in France because I I spend I spend summers in uh, in uh, our house in France and I rather disparagingly refer to these French beers as Nat's piss lager <laughs> and uh, but I do rather like them particularly when the sun is shining so my second choice would be Cronenburg uh, 1664 or 1664 as we call it uh, down in 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 the in the Bergerac region um and it's uh, it is available on on draft uh, but there are any number of other uh, French lagers that I, or Belgian lagers. Another one I like called Lef, L-E-F-F-E, which is slightly stronger than says Soissonquatre. But um, uh, so that would be my second choice uh, of beer on draft. I remember drinking Nuki Brown. We always called it Nuki Brown at, at uni in, in yeah. bottles. 
and I think we did we used to call it fighting juice, Robin, something <laughs> like that, because it was sort of deceptively strong. Maybe. I mean, was it cheap? I mean, was that why? I mean, I remember drinking it as a student. So was it cheap when you had it in Glasgow? It, it, it must have been because I certainly wasn't as remotely well off as as poor as any any student. Um, but it was. Uh, it was. I, th- I think it was a bit pretentious of me to do it actually <laughs> in, in a Glasgow pub to ask for a, a, you know a bottle of Newcastle uh, Brown. Um, but uh, of course, I drank other other beers. But that's the one I particularly remember in uh, in my uh, in my flat dwelling days um, when we went down to the pub about nine o'clock before it shut um, and uh, <laughs> and had a, a pint or two uh, with my flatmate. So it's uh, it's it certainly couldn't have been expensive because I, I I couldn't have afforded anything more. I mean, what we drank was cheap all the time you know we drank mm. cheap wine um and cheap sherry <laughs> ch- cheap beer whatever we could lay, lay our hands on nuki brown is only 4.7 percent but for some reason i remember it having special qualities and it's only been available on draft since 2000 yeah they, which is interesting yeah go figure i mean i think somebody i read something about it saying because it's in a bottle and because you, you often don't pour out the entire it's fizzier than it than 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 draft beer, so uh, maybe that's the it's the uh, carbon uh, dioxide that's whizzing around your system that makes it seem stronger because that's not particularly strong beer, is it? Four point seven. No, but that would have been strong at the time because four point beers have got stronger over yeah. time, haven't they? So four point seven when we were young was probably quite strong. I think there's a there's a seven point five Lef lager yeah. available for the for the for the the real connoisseurs but uh, yes exactly <laughs> i recently a group of friends of mine went on a stag do in bruges mm. and uh, so, some of the photographs that have been <laughs> sent on the whatsapp group suggest that that the beer is not designed for stag do's yeah some quite extraordinary scenes yeah um <laughs> including one of them the hotel called a paramedic because his hangover was so bad oh really <laughs> <laughs> yes that is that's crisis let's go to the I know you're a wine drinker Will so I'm excited by your bottles or cans uh, selection but I'm guessing you're not someone who drinks wine out of a can unless you're forced <laughs> to at an opening night in a theater I ha- have done um, um, but I know I, I'm a wine drinker these days and um, but the wines I've chosen uh, w- one of them is particularly pricey because it was a wine that was developed by a, a great friend of mine who's now sadly died he was a he was a, a prosecuting attorney in Washington DC uh, then he thought there's an easier way of earning a living, and he became went into the movie business and produced a lot of films. And then he he decided he hated the movie business. He became a winemaker. It sort of sounds like one of your characters who could go through all those lives. Yes, exactly. It's amazing. He, yeah. it's a quite extraordinary. And he was a success in all of all of the the, the three careers that he pursued. And he 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 went to uh, Oregon and, and Northern California. And he produced uh, these incredible Pinot Noirs. But what he did was he shipped in French uh, experts from Burgundy 
to make Californian wines not like these great jammy Ribena type uh, Pinots, but actually more like um, French uh, uh, Burgundies. And he produced a uh, his his company was called Evening Land. So my my wine of choice is an Evening Land Pinot Noir, and it's uh, called La Source, um, and it retails at a at a cool hundred quid at the moment. Whoa. So it's a <laughs> it's a sort of tribute to this this great friend of mine, Mark Tarlov, who died earlier this year. But um, he had become, you know, a kind of ha- having you know made. 20 movies he then created these extraordinary wines in in uh, in the sort of Washington Oregon area and competed with the, the great winemakers and within four or five years he was being getting these amazing ratings so this is a a wine that um, he'd be very pleased I was uh, uh, pitching it but it's uh it, it, it is a it is a delicious uh, Californian Pinot Noir with a Burgundian twist so uh, that would be bottle number one. Oh, I don't mind the phrase Burgundian. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start referring to a lot of things as Burgundian, even if they aren't. I yes. Think. Uh, but I do drink, uh, my sort of everyday drinking is, uh, you know, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, like the rest of the mm. world. But I do yeah. I do like, uh, I do like uh, New World Sauvignons. I mean, I like, I like all types of grape varieties. But um, in in our bit of France, which is southwest France, they make their classic Blanc Sec, which is so dry and mineral that it seems almost tasteless. Um, much uh, I don't tell them this, but um, uh, I I once gave a local winemaker six New World Sauvignon Blancs in a kind of blind tasting um, as an experiment and. Uh, uh, and he said, "Oh, these are delicious because they're full of fruit compared to the the, the local blanc sec." And I said, "Could you, could you make this wine here? In, in it's the same grape variety. Could you make it here in Southwest France?" Me oui, <laughs> but of course they <laughs> they don't. Um, and right. uh, so I think that uh, it, it's a problem for for French winemakers that the new world has sort of not only caught up with them, but it's overtaken them. And uh, whether it's a Chilean, Argentine, South African, Australian, New Zealand, their white wines are actually tastier than the the equivalent white wine in France. And so, uh, you know, I drink all manner of uh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. The one I've chosen is is called Craggy Range, Um, a good uh, Antipodean uh, sort of name. And it's uh, from, not from Marlborough, which is where most of the Sauvignon Blancs come from. It's from a place called Martinborough, which is in the south of the North Island. And it's uh, it's the uh, the Craggy Range Sauvignon Blanc 2021, extremely tasty um, and not too expensive, and uh, you know drink it now. Uh, that's the answer. So, isn't there an argument though that with the, with the kind of sometimes you want the subtlety and more delicate flavours of the the kind of old world wines as well? Like, isn't that? a nice part sometimes yeah i think that's true but i think they've woken up actually and um a lot of um uh, you know australian winemakers have bought up a lot of vineyards particularly in provence and are making more robust 
tastier wines. But I think if you want, a, a, you know, you can get, del, you know, fabulous Chardonnays and fabulous Sauvignon Blancs in France, but they're expensive, you know, um, and um, you have to go to almost like a, a Grand Cru level to to get a, a, an equivalent taste experience, whereas the, the, the 15 quid Sauvignon Blanc from uh, you know, Waitrose uh, is is nowhere near the fifteen quid version in in a French supermarket. Well, the the Craggy Range uh, Martin Brousseau Blanc is thirteen percent. It's about thirteen quid a bottle, which is probably more than most people spend on wine. But it's certainly sort of within within the range for a nice evening. And mm. I I've only recently been enlightened via Robin to the Sancerre. Yes. Mm. Uh, which you have to say, sans <laughs> yeah. But it's amazing because you, when I've gone looking for them and asked, you know, what's a nice sans they point you towards a sort of a 25 quid bottle of wine. And it's just like you're saying, the equivalent sort of, because a sans is essentially Sauvignon Blanc grape, isn't it? Yes. And the equivalent sort of quality you'd get from New Zealand or or Australia would be maybe sort of eight or nine pounds. Yeah, you can get a very delicious, you know, 10 quid Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand or from Chile or from South Africa. Uh, but the, the the French equivalent, and I, I know this because I know lots of uh, uh, winemakers in our region, is um, is just not the same, just doesn't deliver the same, you know, taste quotient and uh it's uh and i think if you're if you become used to that fruitiness of sauvignon blanc the the kind of the classic blanc sex of france are, are a little bit disappointing um because they're so flat and so sharp and mineral you know are you someone who when they're researching a novel or writing a novel has to sort of ban alcohol or is it your <laughs> end of day treat uh, absolutely not, uh, John. No, it's uh, it's uh, it's the it's the fuel that oils the wheels of creation, um, and uh, and uh, the thought of you know st- getting up from your desk uh, at, at seven o'clock in the evening and having a nice cup of tea does not appeal. You know, so so but so I always have a glass of wine or three uh, at the end of a day's work and uh, you know carrot and stick it's very simple um, just don't let it get out of hand you know mm. I always think of Scott Fitzgerald uh, one of the most notorious writer boozers and Scott Fitzgerald was sort of two bottles of whiskey a day uh, at his best um, was told he had to stop drinking or or die and so he moved from whiskey to beer uh, and he drank 40 bottles of beer a day uh, because yeah. he didn't think it was alcoholic. Um, so, you know, there, there is a extreme and there is a, a way of moderation. So I, I try to follow the way of moderation. You know? For the romantic, were you, um, were, you, were you trying to test the drinks that Ross drinks in that? Were you, were you, were you on the brandy while you were writing it and things like that? No, not, not, not quite, Robin. No, I mean, and actually, I, I wonder, you know, because I did a lot of it, I wonder what, uh, you know, drink tasted like in the, in the middle of the 19th century. Um, you know, you, you go into a pub, you could get a gin and water, you know, which is a pretty mm. horrible drink, but it, you'd get drunk pretty quickly. 
or the other thing they used to do was heated drinks. They put a, a red hot poker in a in a in a glass of brandy or a, or a glass of rum, and you'd have a sort of hot toddy. But I don't mm. think the quality of the booze was sort of a particularly high grade. You know, similarly, you know, flagons of wine or whatever they were drinking. I mean. Beer was, you know, I'm sure. I'm sure again, wasn't remotely as good as the as the beer we drink now. But of course, people were, you know, people drank uh, for not. You know, Thackeray used to have a glass of brandy at breakfast, uh, and when Dickens was doing his public readings, uh, before he went on stage, he'd have two pints of Guinness and champagne. So you know, you think, <laughs> wow. well, he must have been pretty lashed yeah. by the time he started. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, it's uh, it's very interesting looking at social habits um, of, of the time. You know, if anybody poured themselves a glass of brandy with their cornflakes, you'd say, you know, you, you're a, you, AA is beckoning, mate. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but not 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 William Makepeace Thackeray. It was just normal, you know. That's a great bit in in the romantic work. Where he um, kind of gets addicted to this medicinal drink, which is basically opium. Yes, it's called Mrs. Dashwood's, and he's kind of just constantly necking that. Um, and uh, it reminds because I've I've had a bit of a cold, so I've been on the hot toddies, and it is amazing how your brain convinces yourself that because it's medicinal, yes. you can. So I've basically been drinking whiskey all yes, day. Yes. Well, you, you know that what he what Cashel was drinking was laudanum, which was a kind of syrup with with opium in it. You know, heroin, um, and it, you could buy it in any druggist, any chemist you wanted. And uh, there's a you know, Coleridge was addicted, De Quincey was addicted. I mean, they were drug addicts. Um, and there's even a thought that Queen Victoria was addicted to laudanum as well because it was just so prevalent. It was the, you had a toothache, you had a headache, you felt depressed, have a swig of laudanum, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was the cure-all, you know. And, um, uh, but it was, it was widely available and widely consumed, uh, but, it, it, but it was essentially, uh, you know, a kind of uh, transportation method to get heroin into your body. Mm. I've just come back off a trip abroad with quite a few doctors, and because your book was in my head, I, I asked two of the GPs, what would I have to say to you to get prescribed laudanum? And neither of them had heard of it. Oh, really? And they had to Google laudanum, and then they were like, oh, okay, so it's this solution yes. of this, that, and the other. But it's sort of weirdly gone out of fashion, laudanum, but it was <laughs> it was very, very prevalent, wasn't it? There's a very good recipe in my novel, actually. Yeah. <laughs> to make your own, you know. But uh, it's... Um, no, it, it was... Uh, you know, they... Um, again drank a lot and took a lot of drugs um but nobody thought there was anything wrong about that i often wonder if it would be less stressful to live in a time when no one knew that smoking or alcohol was in any way bad for you but it would mean your (laughs) sort of life expectancy was a sort of mid 40s i'd love to know how much they drank actually in units an idea that would be completely foreign to them even the idea of knowing the percentage of alcohol in a drink would be foreign to them but you see also nobody talks about smoking in the 19th century dickens was a chain smoker of cigars for example and he drank a lot and he died when he was 51 or whatever um so uh the, the, the trollope had 2000 cuban cigars in his in his humidor cum cellar and he smoked cigars all the time um and he was a 
you know a pretty heavy drinker i think it was comp totally normal and nobody thought smoking was remotely bad for you you, you, you maybe had a smoking room because you didn't want the smell to permeate your house, but nobody said, "Should you cut? Shouldn't you cut down on the cigars, dear?" Um, it, so it's a, it's quite it, it's fascinating to do that sort of research to see what kind of social customs and social habits were regarded as a, as entirely normal and and nobody would you know, raise an eyebrow at. Do you ever find yourself having to sort of when you're reading? a first draft or you're editing thinking oh i've i've sort of given a modern take on that or i've put quite a modern um opinion in someone's mouths about something like drinking or or smoking and have to sort of cross it out well no it depends on the the framing device of the, of the book you're writing you know if you're if you're writing for example any human heart is written as a series of intimate journals in the in the first person singular and it starts when the character is a schoolboy and it ends when he's a, a, an old man. But everything is filtered through his consciousness. So it, you have to t take steps to make it apt for the period in which it's you know, being, be, being described. Whereas in the romantic, uh, I, I am pretending to write the biography of this fictitious person, Cashel Ross. And so the framing device is that my personality, if you like, and my tone of voice uh, in, in, infects and inflects uh, all the expository prose. But when, when we resort to dialogue or when letters are quoted, it has to seem real 19th century. So um, I, I think it's, uh, it's just you don't want to seem anachronistic and you don't want to um, impose your 21st century values on you know the early 20th century let alone the 19th century so there is a there are many filtering devices that you you use and i think that um but it, it depends entirely and this is true of all novels the first question you should ask what is the point of view and the answer to that explains how the mechanics of the book work well fascinating insight there and glad to see you've never had a character accidentally say i'll just check google maps that's right yeah. or, or no 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 way am i going to do that you know um, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wtf i've just been in waterloo for goodness sake um well we take a break from will boyd's dream pub now to expand our minds in the moon underwater pub quiz Okay, everybody, pens out, eyes down, it's time for the quiz. He played for Zimbabwe, but he was born in South Africa. I know Alaska is bigger, that wasn't the question. Put your phone away. Right, Michael Jackson's Funky Monkey had been deducted five points. Uh, yes, thanks, John. Welcome to the Moon Underwater pub quiz. And it's a literary and musical quiz this week, again. Uh, Will's book, The Romantic, is a brilliant novel about the 19th century in which our hero, Cashel Greville Ross, encounters romantic poets Byron and Shelley in Italy. Read some Byron, Shelley and Keats and recited them over a hip-hop beat, <laughs> so sang Natasha Bedingfield in her hit, <laughs> These Words. That is a perfect pop song, by the way. It's a brilliant song, yeah. yeah. Uh, and she had a bloody good point, because romantic poetry, with a big R has had quite a big influence on popular music, which takes me to this week's quiz, which is about the influence of romantic poetry on Britpop. So three questions. 
in which I ask you to work out which romantic poet is being quoted in the following songs. And to make it easier, is it, you know, it's the, it's the big six romantic poets. Do, do, you, do you think I should tell our listeners the big six? Yeah, you can tell our listeners the big six, but I just want to ask Will if your thesis was written before or after Cool Britannia. Uh, way before, way before. before. I think I think you're going to storm this quiz. To be honest with you, Will. Okay, so I'm going to do three questions, and then we'll we'll like do all the answers after the the break. So yeah. if you want to make notes or or however you want to do it. So question one, Suede's song "Heroin" with an E at the end, which is on the second album, begins with the line "She walks in beauty like the night." From which romantic poet was this line borrowed? Question two. History by the Verve begins with the lines, I wander lonely streets behind where the old Thames does flow, and in every face I meet reminds me of what I have run for. So these lyrics were adapted from a poem by which poet of the Romantic era. And finally, Tender is the Night, or so say Blur, from their smash hit Tender. (laughs) This line was a reference to Tender is the Night, the novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald, but that title was itself a reference to a line from which romantic poet? So there are the three questions. Suede, verve, blur. <laughs> Who were they reading? That's a superb pub quiz, Rob. Well Thank done. you. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, we leave you at the end of part one of Will Boyd's Dream Pub here at the Moon Underwater uh, and remind you that if you want access to extra treats, including Will's bonus choice of his Dream Pub companion, head to moonunderpod.com and click through to our Patreon page. And we very much appreciate your patronage in uh, in these difficult times. But this old girl, this pub, oh, she creaks, doesn't she, Robin? She's creaking. <laughs> she's creaking, uh, but she's going to sail well, even though she's <laughs> not a ship. Uh, but she will continue to sort of sail on the street um, yep. regardless. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.